Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Today's conversation uh, is is an interesting one. It's with Tori Vayer and Lincoln Larson. And Tori and Lincoln are from North Carolina State University. And I saw a press release recently on a research study they'd been conducting over the last couple of years with tens of thousands of students across the country, asking them questions about, do you have a background in hunting? If not, are you interested in hunting? And they got some really interesting insights. And this is one of the pieces of where I'll, I'll be honest, I've been looking for research similar to this for a number of years, and there isn't a whole lot out there. Most of it is along the lines of people who do hunt, uh, what are your interests? It doesn't look at this sort of holistic side of, of uh, you know, even a general population in a microcosm of of university students which i think is a is a pretty pretty interesting focus so uh, i think it's going to be a fun conversation for you to listen to but i am also joined this morning here uh by mr todd waldron todd how are you doing mark i'm great and uh, i'm really looking forward to hearing this conversation it sounds fascinating it's important research and uh, I'm glad you were able to have that conversation. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I talk about it in there. Um, I, I asked Tori and Lincoln about their hunting experience, and neither of them are hunters. Uh, but their focus is in parks, recreation, tourism management. And they're both just really passionate about hunting, fishing, and and its connection to conservation, conservation funding, et cetera. And so uh, I think it's fascinating that they, they're so passionate about uh, about undertaking this research and, and doing a lot more with it. So I, I look forward to actually even seeing more after after this one. Uh, but yeah, what have, what have you been up to these days in the, in the Northeast? You're a busy man, uh, school, new job, and, and everything else. Yeah, life is good. Uh, I just uh, started my second semester in grad school at Virginia Tech in uh, global sustainability. That's going well. Taking a couple courses. Uh, one is called environmental forensics, and the other is called strategies for sustainability. And both of those are really good about learning uh, uh, tools and skills and frameworks for looking at stakeholders and conservation issues and all that stuff. So that's my weekend right there is school. <laughs> um, I've been able to trout fish a couple of times. I missed a really big turkey, uh, hunted twice this spring. And I just, what can I say? Life is good and uh, I'm, you know, enjoying it and looking forward to summer. Well, I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you got out uh, and uh, have gotten on the streams a bit and, and out in the field too. Um, and then you also, uh, we should just cross-reference a podcast that just uh, went out recently is your conversation you had with Brent West up in Maine, right? 
Yeah, what a fun conversation that was. So Brent West is uh, Executive Director of High Peaks Alliance, which is an outdoor rec and conservation group. And he's just talking about upland hunting in Maine and conservation and public access. He's a passionate grouse and woodcock hunter. He's a scientist. So really fun conversation. Glad to have that opportunity to connect with him. And it just uh, reinforces my desire to head to Maine every fall to hunt and fish. Yeah, absolutely. And as if we as we've talked about before, I, I can't wait to get up there sometime and, and do some upland hunting. Uh so people can find that on the Outdoor Feast podcast. Just go to the modcarn.com and, and check that out or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh as always, if you could on either the Modern Carnivore Podcast or the Outdoor Feast, Give us a ranking, hopefully five stars, uh, if you feel so compelled. And that always helps us uh, with, uh, with exposure on the different platforms out there. But with that, we'll head to our conversation with Tori and Lincoln from North Carolina State University. Today, I am joined by a couple people from uh, out east in the Raleigh area, I believe, correct? Yep. And... Um, got Lincoln Larson and Tori Vayer with me from the University of North Carolina, or actually North Carolina State University. That's a mistake you don't want to make around these yeah, parts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, uh, Lincoln. One minute in and already stirring up trouble. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> So, uh, Lincoln, maybe if you give us a little background on, uh, on what you do, who you are. Sure thing. Thanks. I am a professor in the College of Natural Resources at North Carolina State University. I've been here for a few years. I've worked at universities around the country before that. And all my research focuses on human dimensions and natural resource management or conservation, social science, call it what you will, but how people interact with the outdoors. And I started as a wildlife biologist and over time came to realize that to really make a difference in the world of conservation, understanding that human interaction piece is super important. And hunting's a big part of that. And so, you know, I'm not a hunter myself. I've actually never hunted before in my life. So <laughs> heresy on a program like this, I know. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm really interested in that longstanding connection between hunting and conservation and what we can learn about it. Uh, in terms of how people interact with the outdoors. So that's kind of how I'm coming at this. Well, that is uh, that is right in the sweet spot of things I love to talk about uh, as uh, my degree is psychology. And well, uh, all the things I do are related to hunting and fishing. Uh, one of the things that, that I always talk about is a lot of the focus is oftentimes on the natural resources, not on the human dimension side of it. And uh, so I love hearing when people are focusing more on that. Uh, and Tori, if you give a little background on, on yourself. Yeah, thanks for having us today. Um, very similar story to Lincoln. I'm probably just 10 or 15 years behind him. Um, my background is also in the biological sciences. I really fell in love with ecology in undergrad. But as I neared the end of my, my undergrad career, I was like, okay, I like biology and I really like working with animals, but there's this whole piece that's missing. And, it, and that's how humans interact with with these animals and with their environments. So um, 
I knew I wanted to pursue a social science degree. I had no idea it was going to be on a project about hunting and R3 because like Lincoln, I didn't grow up a hunter. I still don't consider myself a hunter. I've been on one hunt and I did not pull the trigger myself. So uh, yeah, we we have a really unique perspective coming into this R3 world, but uh, just like Lincoln, really interested in, in kind of human humans and how they interact with their environment and where we can go with conservation from here. Great. So how how we connected up was um, I reached out to the two of you because I saw the press release on the paper that you recently published based on based on research you've been doing since I believe 2018, 2018 through 2020, correct? Yeah. Yep. And the headline is great. You know, diverse university students across the United States reveal promising pathway to hunter recruitment and retention. So uh, I'm going to, I'm going to kick this off by, by asking a a, a provocative question right off the bat. And that is um, you talk about at the beginning of your paper and sort of the basis of the reason for doing your research is that there is this decline in hunting. Um, And there have been some recent uh, media uh, discussions and and uh, articles written and and videos produced that say the opposite say that we're not losing hunters and so what's your response to somebody who says we're not losing hunters we're doing just fine my response to that is uh, that I have not seen any compelling evidence of any kind to suggest that we're doing just fine. If fine means we've got enough hunters and the population is, is growing. Uh, every indicator that you look at suggests that hunting is declining, whether it's license sales, uh, you know, on down the list of, of possible indicators, um, including social support for hunting specifically. So I wonder, um, you know, I wonder what that means for the future of conservation. For, for a long time, hunting has been inextricably linked to conservation. They've been one and the same thing. In fact, hunting and fishing for a lot of state wildlife agencies continues to fund 60 to 80% of their budgets when you look at license sales and equipment revenue and everything else. And, you know, I don't think that's sustainable given the current trajectory of, of the hunting population. And it's only going to get worse. I hate to be the bearer of bad news today, but if you look at demographic transitions, uh, trends like urbanization, uh, diversification of the U.S. population, none of those align with what we see as the traditional hunting demographic, which is white, male, rural. So by any metric, there's no way to say that the outlook for hunting is good if we continue to operate with the status quo. Okay, so let me follow up with another question then, uh, a, a tough one or maybe not so tough, uh, which is, uh, you hear this question a lot is, well, why don't we just change the conservation model then, uh, where the hook and bullet crowd, so to speak, is not the primary source of funding for conservation? I love what? that question. Yeah. <laughs> Why I don't mean, we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think Lincoln and I both agree. But the way the current system is set up is hunting and angling are a huge revenue source. Uh, so currently, that's not the case. But I think Lincoln and I uh, would both agree that hunting and angling are a part 
of this solution. They're not the only solution. I don't think we're we're here today to say recruiting new hunters is the only way to promote conservation in this country. We're just saying it has historically been a huge part of the conservation landscape and should continue to be a part of the conservation landscape. Um, and I think like where we're at now, we need to keep promoting hunting, but we're not saying it has to be the only solution to our conservation issues. And I'll go farther and add, I totally agree with what Tori said. I'll go even farther and say that it can't be. It can't be the only solution, like it, like it has been in the past in many cases. And we see, uh, you know, other other organizations, you know, NGOs are stepping in to fund conservation in different ways, both hunting and environmental NGOs. And I think, you know, w- what we need to do, if you look at a sustainable, stable funding portfolio, it needs to be diverse. And conservations isn't, <laughs> put, put frankly. And I think that's a problem. And again, to reiterate, you know, we're not saying that hunting isn't part of the solution. Of course it is. And it's, it's been a staple and a centerpiece of, of conservation funding for, for decades. And so it has to be remain a pillar, but we have to look beyond that. And we've got some work going now as part of the study we're talking about later, later on the session, uh, looking at what students think about the future of conservation funding. I uh, won't we'll be maybe be able to share some uh, sneak peeks of those results too, as we move forward. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's great. I I couldn't agree more with with uh, the perspective that both of you have on this. I think, you know, it is where it has been. It will be an important component for the future, but we need to be creative and thinking about it and really addressing all fronts. I'm always amazed when we do events for introducing people to hunting. Uh, we do these half day events and others where people who are just curious. Um, come and learn about the history of hunting, the good, the bad, the ugly, the market hunting, things like that. Um, and then we talk about conservation and the, the North American conservation model, et cetera. And the number of people that come out of that saying, I had no clue that hunting had anything to do with conservation is always fascinating. And so, I mean, just awareness and understanding of what it has been there there's a there's a gap there i think so and we're fighting an uphill battle in the the media landscape in particular the social media landscape now in terms of how people are exposed to hunting and the images they see and the stories they hear about hunting which are grossly exaggerated and mischaracterized i mean cecil the lion you know would be one example you hear about these trophy hunting these poaching episodes and that's what hunting has become to many people particularly those who don't didn't grow up around it and so we're fighting that uh, PR battle. <laughs> At the same time, we're fighting these demographic transitions and everything else. No, ab- absolutely. You know, and that is that is a challenge, and it's a component. There's there's probably not many activities that have more uphill uphill battles when it comes to recruitment. But I think we've got a lot of great things going on too. Um, so why don't we, I guess, let's just talk about the, the research, you know, how, how did this originate? I, I, you know, asked you both this, uh, uh, previously, but it's like, what really was the impetus as, as you looked at declining participation numbers and what you wanted to do with this, with this study? Yeah, I'll jump in on that in part because I was the original mastermind behind it and, and Tori came out to, <laughs> to help later and she'll talk more about the results and everything like that. But, um, you know, we, we've talked about the, the decline of hunting and why that's a concern to some extent. I think most of the audience is probably aware of that. Uh, we started to hint at possible solutions and one of them is to change the face of hunting, change what hunters, contemporary hunters look like if we can't keep up with demographic transitions. And, uh, 
you know, when I was working up at Cornell and the in the uh, Human Dimensions Research Unit up there, we started to do this in New York State, and we looked at women, we looked at racial ethnic minorities. And we look specifically at locavores, so people really inclined to eat, you know, local food sources. Again, a, a group that many of your your listeners are probably familiar with. You might be in that crowd yourself. So, you know, locavores. What we found is that there are a lot of uh, a lot of connections between locavores and hunting, and great interest in consuming game meat, but far lower interest in a national scale sense of actually hunting. So, people who haven't hunted in the past are interested in local meat, picking up a firearm or some implement and going out there and doing it themselves. Not a lot of interest in that, more so among some of the younger locavore populations, but most locavores, local foodies are old white women. <laughs> and if they haven't had it in the past, it's highly unlikely they're going to start doing it in the future. So while there's a little bit of promise on all those fronts, it was hard to, to pick a particular demographic segment and say, hey, this is where, this is the golden ticket or the, the silver bullet to the future of, of R3 recruitment, retention, and activation in hunting. Uh, so we shifted gears a bit when I got to Clemson when I was working down there, and we looked at one place where you can find women, racial ethnic minorities, uh, locavores, any diverse population you want in one place with an email address, and that's college campuses. And there, there are a bunch of other reasons to focus on college students uh, beyond the fact that they're in one place and easy to find. Uh, from a from a developmental standpoint, when we're in college, we're inclined to experiment with new activities. And I think we can all say from our ex own experiences, that leads to both positive and negative outcomes <laughs> in college. Uh, but the fact remains is stuff we do as young adults can stick with us later in life as part of our identity. And so there's developmental reasons why college students are a prime target for trying new things like hunting. And college campuses present a social atmosphere where... Uh, new things thrive and there's support networks in place through clubs and organizations and things like that. And so again, from a, from a nurturing standpoint, there's a lot of reasons why college would be a good place to look. And so given the challenges we face on other fronts, given the potential of college campuses to create a unique atmosphere where R3 could thrive, we wanted to see what was possible. Yeah, that's great. Do you, let me ask you this, um, you know, as I read through the, the paper, do you feel that it, it appeared that you were, you know, controlling for as many variables as possible? You're obviously referencing a lot of past studies as some of the base work. Do you feel like focusing on mostly land grant universities that have bigger natural resource programs did that potentially create a bias in terms of your in terms of the 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 audience potential here? Maybe. <laughs> okay. We we can't say for certain because we didn't go to other schools and have a, a point of comparison. Although we're we're talking about doing that now uh, in the future, but I would say you know land grant universities, these big public universities with agriculture programs and natural resource programs are a little bit different than say private schools or smaller community colleges. But there are millions of students that attend these big land grant universities uh, nationwide. And we're talking about a lot of the flagship schools, you know, I'm thinking of NC State, Ohio State, Tennessee, University of Florida, University of Georgia, uh, a lot of schools out West. So um, these are big schools that have a lot of students and less than 20% of our sample majored in natural resources. 
So even though we're at land grant schools, we're talking about you know business majors, education majors, psych majors. To your credit, there, Mark, all these all these <laughs> other ones uh, that are in the mix. So I think you know if you look at our sample, uh, it's it's pretty darn representative of the U.S. college population, which for young adults is 42% of Americans at this point. So uh, I think it represents who's out there in terms of college students pretty well. But we should definitely investigate what this what this looks like at other places too. Sure, sure. So Tori, when you're talking about the results of this, what are the what are some of the big findings that you really found most interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think we found the first thing we found was exactly what we expected to find, right? The people who said they had hunted in the past, they are current active hunters. Those are white males from rural backgrounds. Some of them, like Lincoln said, from natural resource and ag majors. But then when we looked at this group that said, I've never hunted in the past, but I think I might be interested in hunting in the future, that's 20% of our sample. And they are not all white males from rural backgrounds. So that's the first, I wouldn't necessarily say like shocking, but it was a a happy surprise result of look how many students don't look like what we think hunters look like. And they've never hunted in the past. Most of them don't have a family member who hunts. They don't have the social support to even start hunting. And they're still saying they're interested in trying it in the future. So I think This study is a great jumping off point for where we can go in the future with our three efforts. If we know there's groups of people interested in hunting, okay, how do we foster that? How do we support that? But we didn't even know that there were groups of non-white rural males before we did this study. So that's really exciting and, and quite surprising compared to, again, what we thought we would find was just the white male population. So one of the things you did look at was the social support network, right? Which was both immediate family, extended family and friends, and then those who didn't have any social support. It it sounded like uh, that is a real important component. Is that correct? Both in terms of, was that both for people who have hunted and those who may, or mostly just that, that first group? Um. Both, I think, in slightly different ways. So we found that the students who are active hunters, they have hunted in the past. Um, I'm trying to find the exact number right now, but most of them had some type of social support in the past. So they had a family member, father, brother, sister, mother, who had hunted in the past. Um, So we kind of got this, this image that if you grew up in a hunting family, if you were already in the hunting community, you were likely to continue hunting or say you're an active hunter in college, that potential hunter group that we were just talking about, way less likely to say they have any social support for hunting. So it's really interesting that they don't have someone in their family that hunts, but a lot of them did cite, I have extended family or a friend. So maybe that's where some of the interest is coming from. But I think As Lincoln and I kind of went through these results, we found the lack of social support from the potential hunter group really interesting. And again, thinking about how do we supplement familial social support with something else if we really want to get these potential hunters into the hunting community. Right. So you called uh, 
I think the term you came up with is NTPH, correct? The non-traditional path hunters. Yeah, it's just a, uh, just another I'd useless acronym. Say, <laughs> yeah, I'd love to say we coined it, but that was also definitely in the literature before before okay. I used it. Well, I would say we we did co- coin it at, at Cornell. So non-traditional path hunters, with the notion that a traditional path hunter is, you know, if you do a survey of uh, a harvest survey of hunters that are out there, they're going to be ninety percent or more white, uh, 90% or more male, and predominantly from rural areas, whether you're in Wisconsin, whether you're in Florida, wherever you are, right? And and so that that's a traditional hunter. When we say traditional hunter, that's what we're talking about. Non-traditional is any pathway that is not that. And so, you know, Tori was just describing social support. If we looked at past hunting participation among college students, 29% of our sample, when you account for waiting and everything else, 29% of our sample had hunted in the past at some point, which is a lot. And it's a lot higher than the national average. Uh, It's hard to really compare because sometimes those are annual. We looked at at any point in the past. But those who did, they were 12 times as likely to be past hunters if they had an immediate family member who hunted. And so that social Hmm. support piece is so big. Uh, It's so big for that population. And that's true of, I mean, we did this in 22 states, right? So it's it's true anywhere you are in the country, controlling for region, it doesn't matter. Social support across the board is is really important. Uh, and one of the things I think that jumps out to me in looking at that and thinking about traditional versus non-traditional, the NTPH, non-traditional path hunters that you referenced, is that too often research on hunting and frankly, our three efforts, recruitment and retention efforts, focus on active hunters or people that are part of this larger hunting social world. And that's a very homogenous group. (laughs) And the social networks within that group don't spread too far and wide. What our research is showing is that there is an enormously large sample of students who aren't part of that social world in any way, shape, or form who are incredibly interested in hunting. It was 22% of the 17,000 students we surveyed nationally, 22% are interested in this, and they have absolutely no way of connecting with it, given the way things are currently set up. And I think that's been something that's been totally missed. And again, research, programming, all of that, because we've been so focused on what we know, which is human nature. And that's just kind of going back to the drinking from the same well over and over again. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, yeah, I think we the the terminology the NTPH is uh, is is maybe as is uh, as challenging as the adult onset hunter that Tovar Surly <laughs> coined. <laughs> Sounds like it's something that you pick up. I, I like to I like to talk simplify it down down or dumb it down to to two groups that I talk about, and that is hunters and not yet hunters. <laughs> Because <laughs> I think when we talk about non-hunters, it, it tends to be like, hey, you know what? You're in this category. We've now labeled you in this group and and never show you pass over to a different group. And uh, and so I like to think that that everybody has the, has the opportunity if they uh, if they if they want at some point. Now I or admire, in the future. I admire your glass half full perspective there. But with all due respect, I'm going to disagree because we had 50 percent of our population as, as non-hunters and we put them in that group because particularly for moral and ethical reasons, there ain't no way in hell they're going to hunt <laughs> at any point unless something <laughs> dramatic changes. Uh, maybe there's a possibility there. But the good thing about that group is even though the chance of them hide, hunting in the future are essentially non-existent, they still support it. 
for certain yeah. reasons. Yeah. And they certainly care about conservation as well. And that's something we'll probably get to here in a bit. In a bit. Well, and, and it is uh, absolutely, there's, there is that contingent. However, I am always surprised at how many vegans and vegetarians uh, are, have become hunters, uh, in, in different capacities over the years. You know, we have people, uh, right in, uh, at different times basically saying, Hey, I've seen something and I'm vegetarian that you d- guys did. And I really think that's, that's cool. Or other people who, uh, we had a woman on, on the podcast several years ago who was, was a vegan and actually determined she was going to start eating meat and said, if I am, the only way I'm going to do it is, is through hunting. And, uh, so I think that fluidity can be good. And, and obviously the opposite can be just as true. Also people who are hunters who become non-hunters. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, this is, this is really interesting. So, so you talk about, co- yeah, about conservation. So maybe touch on that a little bit. What, that was also a, a motivator. Now the, the terminology you, you used, I believe I'm going to, I wrote it down, I know, because these were terms that I had never heard of before. Were there ego, uh, uh, what were the ter- terms leave it, again? Leave it to the academics to start dropping <laughs> words like that, right? <laughs> we have, what is it, egoistic and altruistic? I mean, we could break that down and make it much more simple to understand, for sure. Sounds good. Well, yeah, why don't we talk about that? The, talk, sh- share what that means, the egoistic versus the altruistic. So altruistic... Um, this one I think is a little bit more simple in my head. All of the activities we put under altruistic just logically make sense to me. So any student that said, um, something like they support hunting to control nuisance species that are negatively impacting humans or negatively impacting the environment, those are altruistic uh, motivations or reasons to approve of hunting. The egoistic category, I think, is a, a little bit more broad and uh, fitting into that category are students who approve of hunting or are motivated uh, to hunt for more social and more personal reasons. So I want to spend time in nature or I want to spend time with my family and friends in nature. Um, more, more related to the individual themselves and them spending time outdoors versus the altruistic category is a lot more about helping the ecosystem as a whole. Lincoln, you, you look like you have something to add there. Yeah, it's the beauty of having the uh, video feed here as well. Um, I, I was just going to add that while all, all, all current hunters, traditional hunters, if you will, express a, a wide range of motivations, including these personal reasons, more altruistic reasons, uh, meat among others. Those who don't have current connections to hunting really don't show very strong egoistic motivations to hunt in part because they don't know what they're missing <laughs> or, you know, or, or what those other social and cultural elements might be. And so it's really geared towards, as Tori just said, kind of the altruistic motivations to hunt for these newcomers. And I think it's really important to think about that when we think about how we frame the activity and what it provides. Because if we talk about the cultural connections and this, you know, the the idea of hunt camps and all this notion, it's all it's fallen on deaf ears. Nobody they have no way of of connecting or it's not resonating. And so I think it's really important to understand the motivation is driving interest in hunting when we talk about how to engage in hunting. You know, that's a, that's a really interesting perspective. And so if, you, if you're putting sort of those traditions, the social component of it within that egoistic side of it, uh, I, I always say, you know, you can't, you can only tell a person so much about hunting, why it's great, what the value is 
without actually having them do it. Uh, so, you know, maybe supporting what you just said, Lincoln, it's, it's like, you can't, you can't explain that really. It needs to be shown. It needs to be, to be experienced. Um, one of the things that I was curious about, and I don't know if you had it in the paper or not, I don't recall seeing it as to whether, when you look at those, those, those reasons, if you will, uh, hunting to obtain meat, hunting to obtain a trophy versus the altruistic and the egoistic, was there, were they the same for, um, approval rates by people of hunting and motivations to start hunting or did those vary again on a just comparing, contrasting approval or disapproval of hunting versus desire and motivation to participate versus not? Yeah, across the board approval. So between all of our groups, active hunters, lapsed hunters, potential hunters, and non-hunters, approval for hunting is higher. So like Lincoln said earlier, even these non-hunters who have no desire to hunt themselves in the future definitely approve of hunting for altruistic reasons, so to help the ecosystem, and they still approve of hunting for getting local meat. So again, it's really interesting that this group of non-hunters who has no desire to go hunting themselves still really supports the idea of obtaining local and ethical meat. Um, The motivations, and I, I wouldn't say we asked motivations to start hunting. We just said, are you motivated to hunt? Um, they mirror the same pattern, but non-hunters are way lower than our group of active hunters and potential hunters. Yeah, we've done other national studies on this with other populations. And what we've seen repeatedly when you look at the general public uh, in, in the United States is that there is consensus and approval of hunting, uh, especially for these altruistic and meat-motivated reasons, even for people who would never hunt. And we saw the same thing among college students. But when you talk about egoistic or trophy reasons, there's a lot more variability in terms of support for hunting. And ironically, uh, those two motivations are what you see featured all the time when you think about hunting and the, the eye of the, of the public in terms of how it's presented in the media and everything else. And so this, the arguments that resonate aren't the messages that are being sent to the American public. And that includes college students. And for anybody that's potentially interested in hunting, that could be a turnoff. Yeah, I uh, agreed. You know, I, I think, you know, it is where I, a, a space where I believe the critique of media is appropriate in terms of the images that are put out there. Um, the trophy side of things, like you said, Cecil, uh, right now, um, you know, as of late, uh, NRA clips that were out there uh, about an African hunt that went went awry. Um, I think it's used as a, as a, as a wedge to to really create. Um, um, some, some caricatures, like you said earlier of, of hunters and things like that. And something that isn't very common, um, and, and really, I don't know, just trying, trying to feed a narrative that, uh, that isn't helpful. Um, you know, wh- what about what, so when you talk about, did, you know, the altruistic reasons of meat versus, um, let's say population control, um, was there any was there any difference within there? Because the one thing you know, I, I, I've when I hear people say they understand 
the need for hunting because of population control, of which the 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 sort of the quintessential example would be white-tailed deer, right? Because of the damage being done that everybody can see, if especially if you're in the suburbs and your hostas are getting chomped. Um, I, I always, I, I I I don't say I cringe with that, but to me, I think it misses the point of it's just such. A, a, a small part of the entire puzzle of what hunting is. Um, but it sounded like maybe in the paper you found that people, again, you, it is some, some a reason why people will approve of hunting. Did you actually find, though, that that people would be motivated to hunt for the reasons of population control, as, as an example? Yeah, so if we're looking at our group of potential hunters, which... I think we've all agreed so far that that's our most interesting group. So I'm only talking about potential hunters for right this second. Meat, obtaining local ethical meat is the number one motivator. But right behind obtaining local meat is hunting for altruistic reasons. And then much below that is egoistic. And then very lowest on the scale is hunting for uh, to obtain a trophy. So meat and altruistic reasons are really, really close up there as the highest motivators for why someone who hasn't hunted in the past would like to hunt in the future. And the population of active hunters, it's mirrored. Um, so active hunters also had the top motivator of hunting for local meat. Their second motivator was also altruistic reasons. Um, and I think, again, Lincoln and I are both coming at this this project from kind of wildlife and biology backgrounds. So sometimes I forget that not everyone has kind of the wildlife management background that I have and that I have a complex understanding of that we're mixing apex predators and that's why hunting is also important. Um, So it's really interesting to see that even if you don't have this wildlife biology background, you still understand that hunting is good as a management tool and a really powerful wildlife management tool. And you got to keep in mind, we're talking about Gen Zers here, and they're big on social causes. I mean, from climate change to social justice, it's just, it's a different generation and a different mindset. And I think that's part of what we see here, particularly when it comes to these altruistic motivations is what, you know, what can we do to band together to help society or in this case, conservation. And that is a big motivating force for a lot of people in that generation. I think it's really cool also to think about, again, if this study is a jumping off point for where do we go from here in the R3 world and and where can conservation go from here, it's also really important to think of these um, potential hunters or even our non-hunter groups as hunting advocates. How can these, this next generation of policymakers, of scientists, of chefs and like English teachers, whatever these college students grow up to be or go on to be, they could be really powerful hunting advocates, even if they don't go on to hunt themselves. So I think um, I don't want to say that recruiting actual new hunters isn't important. That's obviously one of our main goals as well. But looking at these approval numbers and even the motivation numbers, it's really, really cool to see people who aren't coming from this traditional background saying, I approve of hunting for this reason. And yeah, like Lincoln said, I'm willing to support conservation. I really care about conservation, even if I don't want to pull the trigger myself. So I think there's a way to leverage that hunting advocate view, even with students that don't want to go hunting themselves. 
And just to underscore that point, I mean, I don't know if we, we haven't talked about specific numbers here, but we're talking about potential hunter group among all these college students nationally, 50% women, 40% minority, 50% urban, 80% non-natural resource majors. This is a totally different demographic than the hunting community has seen, and I would argue than the, con- the wildlife conservation community has seen. So if we can, if we can extend th- that web of support to reach these other populations early at this stage in life, that could be transformative in so many ways. Absolutely. No, absolutely. It, it is. And that's what's exciting to see is the is the this empirical data that that shows that uh, as to what what truly is the opportunity for for uh, new potential hunters. Hey everyone, it's Mark. I hope you're enjoying this conversation in the podcast. If you are new to hunting and you want to continue down the path to becoming a hunter, make sure you check out huntingcamp.live. This is our online learning portal and you can go try it out for free. Get a lesson and see what you think. We do video-based learning and there are outdoor mentors in our community who are there to help you and answer questions you might have and get you into your local hunting community so that you can start down this path to a new adventure. Again, just go to huntingcamp.live. So let's talk about um, constraints because you looked at that within within the study too. Um, and, and I thought it was interesting. I think you had called out sort of a... a, a a linear nature or a, a connection between those in terms of some don't matter if others are are there. So as an example, a constraint being a moral conviction uh, that says either I don't want to kill animals or I don't believe in killing animals and or I don't believe in firearms or so- something like that, right? Versus more logistical concerns, right? Of, of a constraint is I can't get out or I don't know where to go, but talk about that a little bit. I think, cause I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Our idea is that, is that these constraints fit sort of a hierarchy, I guess, instead of just a linear path of once you overcome one, there's another, I feel it's more of a dynamic hierarchy. I would say, Let, for example, if I have a personal reluctance to kill an animal. I morally object to that. I'm really unsure of if I want to take the life of an animal. I'm not even thinking about where I can go hunting. I'm not even thinking about how I'm going to get out there. How do I get a firearm? What permits do I need? That's all of those constraints aren't even on my radar because I already don't think I want to shoot an animal. Um, so I, I personally think the hierarchy of constraints is really, really interesting. And, um, Again, I don't want to discount the non-hunter group as hunting advocates, but it's also why if we have limited resources for our three efforts, we we can't target the entire non-hunter group. If a lot of them have these really personal barriers to overcome, that might be something that they have to work on personally before our three efforts start reaching them. So this potential hunter group the top barrier for potential hunters was that they lacked skills and knowledge to go out hunting. The moral objections and comfort around firearms, really low on the scale. So it seems like they've already kind of come to terms with those types of barriers and they're really needing the hard skills to go out and hunt themselves. Um, And I think that's really important for managers to know, right? If we have limited resources that we can allocate to our three efforts, here's 
exactly where we need to be putting them to get this new group of hunters into the hunting community. And let's not worry right now about all of these students that do morally object to hunting. They can solve that on their time. (laughs) And we'll worry about these students that already want to come out hunting and just don't have a ride or don't have a firearm themselves, things like that. Think about barriers too. I do want to point out that uh, one of the biggest ones for every group is not having enough time to to do it or interest in other activities at the same time. And, you know, that's that's a reason to not focus on college students. And a lot of people have told us that in the past as we kind of launched this research and all the, and the all the programs we're running now for college students across the country to get them engaged, kind of following up the second stage of this, which we can talk about at the end, um, is is how do, you know, how do you get them there with all these other things on campus that they might want to try and do? Uh, and that's true. And there's no way to avoid that. But that's the beauty of that college atmosphere, right? Is there's, there's so much going on. And you're, as Tori said, you're not going to get everybody. Uh, but if you can just get a few people who are interested and hooked, it snowballs pretty quickly on a college campus where you have these social support networks. And I think, you know, that's always going to be a barrier. It's a barrier for adults during the pandemic or whatever else trying to get out and hunt. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't write off college students just because they're busy or because they don't have disposable income that would lend itself to, to hunting purchases. We have to get beyond those and think about some of these other pathways. To, to that end, uh, Tori, you, you've been involved with um... – your university club uh, that's associated with backcountry hunters and anglers. Is that, is that correct? Am I correct? Correct. Yeah. Before I graduated, I was the vice president of NC state university BHA. So not North Carolina state, but just the university chapter. (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. And so, I mean, what did you see anecdotally along the lines of what you're talking about? Did you see these potential hunters engage or was it more of you had just those who were already active hunters involved? I think it definitely starts with those who are already involved. Obviously the name backcountry hunters and anglers can be quite intimidating for someone who's never hunted or fished before in their lives. And they think that's the only thing the club is about. So uh, Andrew Howell, the the president and I did a lot of, I would say, kind of marketing work to make sure when we were at club fairs and when we were advertising events on and off campus, we really tried to emphasize that we're here about protecting public lands and waters and protecting access to these places. We're not only about hunting and angling. And that seemed to be a big draw for, like we said, these students that are already interested in conservation uh, and maybe are just not yet over the edge on the hunting and fishing side of things. But we focused a lot on trash cleanups and and public land hikeouts. So if you didn't want to be a part of the hunting piece of those, you could still come and join the club. And I think that was huge, uh, huge for us. And I think also Again, this is anecdotally, I don't have really anything to back this up, but I would think that seeing someone like me who doesn't necessarily look like what you think a hunter looks like, and I stand up in front of the club meetings and say, hey, I'm from right outside Washington, D.C. I also don't know what hunting is. That is a, to me, I would feel more comfortable in a club like that versus standing or sitting in a classroom with a bunch of bros who are really intimidating me because they've been hunting their whole lives I wouldn't want to be a part of that atmosphere. So I think just having someone stand up in front of the room that changes what they think a hunter looks like or a conservationist looks like is really helpful in recruiting new students. 
Um, we also use that to recruit students to our, our hunting workshops, for sure. I would go into freshman classrooms and be like, hey, I'm not a hunter, but I care about hunting. Please come to our workshop. And just having someone who is not what they expect, I think, is pretty helpful. Absolutely. No, I, I completely agree. That's that's great. Uh, so I, I do have... Um have a question for for the for both of you given my eternal optimism of uh of the not yet hunter and that is whether the two of you think you might actually try hunting sometime if you if you had to put yourself into one of those categories is it the never will hunt but support it or is it uh i would consider hunting i just don't today I feel like I have to watch what I say here. This I want I want more interviews. I want to stay in this network. So I I gotta <laughs> say what you want to hear. I think. Um, I, I think no, I there's myself, there's no wrong answer. There's no wrong answer. <laughs> I think I would put myself in the potential hunter category. I I'm where I'm standing right now. I don't feel like I'm ready to take the life of an animal, but I don't know if that will always be the case. I've really enjoyed being a part of the hunting community. I've met a lot of great people and I like really enjoy game meat and I enjoy having people that can give me game meat. And if I could survive off of only that and never buying meat at a grocery store, that would make me so happy. So I am motivated for all the same reasons that our pop our study population is motivated for i just still don't feel ready to take the life of an animal and that feels like a really big step to me but i'm not saying i'll never get there it's it's something i look forward to exploring as as we go on i think that's a great answer <laughs> yeah i've I would say I'm definitely in the potential hunter camp. Uh, and the reason I say that is I've checked every other box you would check for an outdoors person, whether from fishing on down the line. And uh, for me, it just boils down to, to firearms, guns. I, I don't, <laughs> for whatever reason, I guns, I, I don't, I don't, uh, it's just not something that I've done in the past and that I feel comfortable around. And I know a lot of people in similar positions to me. And so, yeah, maybe bow hunting or taking a different path into it or something like that might be more, uh, appealing or palatable for me. Um, but it's something that I'm definitely interested, uh, in pursuing in part because I love game meat, <laughs> but, uh, but something I'll definitely look into in the future, especially as I'm exposed to more people who are very persuasive when it comes to the benefits of hunting and why you should engage, including, but not limited to you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's good to hear. Uh, well, I mean, I think this—I I think this study that you both, along with the rest of the teams that they have have led, is is wonderful, and we need more of it. Um, do you uh, what What do you have coming up? Are you Are you going to do do some more work that you can that you can share? Yeah. So, so this was just the tip of the iceberg. Honestly, this was just kind of getting to know the lay of the land out there. And the second part of this project, which Tori has been a part of too, is, is actually running hunting workshops for college students with no previous hunting experience. And over the last two years, we've been doing that uh, at universities around the country. We've run, I think it's 16, 17 of these workshops now with three or 400 students participating in various states working with the state agencies, like here in North Carolina, for example, North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission was instrumental in helping us put together the team and the NGOs were BHA and other NGOs collaborated to, to bring a bunch of volunteers. And it was a big event. You know, we had in North Carolina for a couple of years, we've been doing this every fall. We have 20 to 30 students who have no previous hunting experience come and about 
20 volunteers and agency agency staff who are there to to run the event at the range and and have some outdoor components and uh what strikes me in those events and i've seen this play out in different states is when the when the volunteers when the agency professionals come into the room they their jaws drop when they see who's there because so few of those participants are white male. <laughs> it's just like, wait, where did you get these people again? What happened? How are they? What? <laughs> just complete disbelief. And my, my response is, this is college. Like college campuses today are incredibly diverse. And so is interest in hunting if we just find the right ways to tap into it. Yeah, I would agree. Adding on to that, again, this is mostly anecdotally. We'll, we'll kind of... Uh, I don't want to spoil too much of the research ahead of actually publishing this paper, but I think BHA volunteers were also instrumental in, in helping at least our workshops in North Carolina run smoothly. And one of the big things we noticed was students really, the student participants really took to the BHA volunteers who were young or who were also non-white, non-male. We had one, uh, one volunteer, Brooke, who we got almost every, um, answer on one of our surveys was like, bring Brooke back. We loved Brooke. Brooke's session was the most, and she's a 25 year old Hispanic female. Uh, like just getting that feedback, even anecdotally was like, okay, these students not only want to come to a hunting workshop, but they really, really enjoyed interacting with volunteers that they could get on with, with on a personal level. It wasn't just about going to a hunting workshop for like professional development or it wasn't strictly business. It was very personal. And I think um, our three efforts can learn a lot from, from what we have coming in terms of how to get these diverse populations and also how to keep them around, make these long lasting interpersonal relationships. And and I'll add two things to that. And I, I definitely remember the feedback about Brooke specifically here in North Carolina, but uh, yeah, I think, Two things to, to keep in mind going forward in terms of, in terms of how this this can be used. One is that hunting workshops for non-traditional hunting populations, like a lot of the college students we're talking about, are inherently different than what we're used to doing in the R3 world uh, because of the different motivations, because of the different barriers and the different pathways. You know, what typically we'd emphasize, say, hunter safety, and I'm not saying we should we shouldn't talk about safety at these workshops. But that's not even on the radar of these first-time participants. Like we spend an hour talking about tree stands, and they're just like, "What? <laughs> what the hell's going on here?" And so it's much more important to have candid conversations about what hunting means and reflecting on that experience, taking an animal for the first time, eating game meat. If you're a vegan, I'll never forget we had a couple of vegans, like you said, Mark, at the workshop, who were eating meat at lunch, and I was like, "What?" what happened here? What's going on? And to them, it was all about their ecological footprint, right? It wasn't necessarily about any other barrier than that. And so they could get past that with hunting. And um, so I think they have to look different and we have to recognize that. And and that's a key, uh, key part of that. And the other part is there are a ton of students, you know, there's a, a huge market for this, but it does require some investment. They're not just lined up, knocking down the doors, waiting to go to, to a hunting club that they've never been to, to, to tr go to the range or do whatever else. So we need liaisons on campuses who are willing to spearhead these efforts and connect with these groups and foster those relationships. It can blossom pretty quickly once you plant the seed on a college campus. And we also need agency partners and NGO partners who are willing to work together to make it happen because there are all kinds of barriers when you're thinking about firearms and college campuses and everything else. You've got to have strong partners 
to figure out mechanisms in a particular state context to make it work. And we've actually got a couple spinoffs on this project now. One we're looking into working with uh, HBCUs, historically black colleges across the uh, the southeastern United States, working with the National Wildlife Federation and other partners to get uh, to just expand that horizon and really target a population that has been completely overlooked and marginalized from the conservation landscape for for centuries, especially hunting. And that's African-Americans, particularly young African-Americans. So there's just a, another one of many possibilities as we look to see what, what what's out there and how we go forward in R3. And a lot of signs suggest that college students are a really great place uh, to focus our efforts. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's it's exciting. I, I love what you're doing, and uh, can't wait to to continue to see what more you'll you'll do with it. And uh, I really appreciate both of you taking time today to to talk with me about the research. Um, if people want to sort of follow along uh, as to what's going on, is there an abstract out there, something they can they can see online and or follow your future work? Is there a good place to go? That's a good question. Uh, this paper is published in the Journal of Wildlife Management. We'll ha- we should have more coming out from the Wildlife Society journals uh, and, and some of their networks for future press releases and stuff along these lines. Uh, we don't have yet a website in place for some of the programming that we're doing. The One of the college student program models now is called Academics of Field, and it's run by the Georgia Wildlife Federation. Uh, and so we're working with them to potentially do some website development around this. Uh, it's, it's been a big deal in Georgia and other states, too, and they've been a great partner. So I don't have anything to point you to directly, but just stay tuned to the landscape uh, and reach out to us specifically if you have more questions. Uh, Tori and I would be happy to follow up with uh, with more information, and I'm sure Mark could provide our contact information somehow as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'll put the links in the uh, show notes uh, page at modcarn.com. So just uh, just go there. So, well, thanks a lot, Tori. Thanks, Lincoln. Uh, we'll uh, I'm sure we'll do this again when there's some new insights that are gained. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. It's always fun to talk about this stuff. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.